Welcome to today's Community Cast. My name is Matt Morgan. I'm the pastor at Community Brookside, a new church plant in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We are so blessed by your presence, and we hope that today's content will bring you joy. So this morning we're starting a new sermon series called Christmas Carol Theology. And so we're going to be looking kind of a little bit deeper at some of the songs that we sing during the Christmas season and what those songs mean and, and how we as people of the cross respond to the birth of our Savior. So today we're going to look at this song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Guys, great job on that. It's one of my favorite Advent songs. Uh, I just love, I love this newer modern version of it. It just, it makes me happy to sing it. So Come Thou Long Expected Jesus is a carol that was used to introduce the theme of uh, Advent to many pastors right now. Like today, that song is probably going to be sung a lot around churches in the United States and across the world. And it's a song that was written by Charles Wesley, who was born in England, and he and his brother John Wesley, who are both the founders of Methodism, they came to America on a mission trip to Georgia one of the last of the 13 English colonies. And they came on board of ship from England and the Wesley brothers there on that ship met 26 German Moravians. And John and Charles were super impressed by the hymn singing of these Germans. And they realized for the first time that hymn singing could be a very spiritual experience. Charles actually wrote more than 6,500 hymns many of which are still sung today in Christian worship all around the world. And two beloved Christmas carols actually are are uh, attributed to our friend Charles. One of them is Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and this one, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Charles was an incredible preacher who, out of the United Methodist Hymnal, wrote about 480 of the 525 original hymns in the 1780 version of our hymnal. If John the Baptist was alive today, I think this would probably be one of his favorite songs too. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus could well have been uh, one of his favorite thematic songs because the words echo the yearning and the glorious proclamation of John and the phrase, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, born to set your people free from our fears and our sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in Thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. So I don't know about you guys, but uh, Christmas season for me, a lot of the times it's about going over lists, right? So if you're anything at all like my wife and myself, we have this constant like, did you remember to do this? Did you remember to do that? There's a lot of like, did you remember moments We make lists of gifts so that we don't forget what we need to buy. We make lists of groceries so we don't forget what meals we need to prepare throughout the month of December, especially as we look forward to Christmas meals with friends and family. Uh, We put together guest lists of of who's coming to parties and uh, who's not. Uh, We also put together lists of family members we're buying Christmas gifts for. And sorry, guys, but family members we're not buying Christmas gifts for. Advent for my wife and I, like many of you, I imagine it's a season of remembrance, not just of the parties and the food and the gifts, but also the ultimate gift of redemption through Jesus Christ, who we recognize was born to us on Christmas morning. 
So we can't forget the true wonder and magic of Christmas, that, that it lies in actually it, God's planning to send his son. And God didn't just plan to send his son as a result of our sin. God foreknew it, and God had planned to send his son since before time even began. God knew what was going to happen. It was carefully, lovingly planned before history was even written. At special times throughout history, actually, God pulled back heaven's curtain, and sometimes he even allowed the promised light of the Messiah to shine through in in certain glorious moments. Sometimes when the world looked terrible, there were glimpses of what was going to come, right? So this morning, we're going to take a short tour of some of that history, and we're going to try to follow these, these kind of moments where rays of light, God's holy light, shone through the darkness. And eventually, it would come to rest on a manger in Bethlehem. We're going to start out, ironically enough, at the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty, crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat any fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed together fig leaves to make coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from him. The Lord God among the trees of the garden Oh, sorry, they hid from him among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The first moment of darkness comes in the very beginning of our Bible. The third chapter in, and we already see that we are making poor decisions. And here we are in 2020, and many of us still make poor decisions, right? In this moment in history, we come to focus on this perfect place of Eden, but not in its perfect state. What God had created perfect, and for a purpose, Adam and Eve broke. They damaged it. And we see God then moving on to uh, basically conduct the first trial in human history. Adam and Eve had sinned, and then God judged them. Genesis goes on to say in verse 16, To the woman God says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your lives. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, 
and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And then God takes a minute and he speaks directly to Satan, who had manifested himself to Eve in this kind of seductive form, right? We see that he shows up as a serpent. Satan had been deceptively reasonable and rational in his conversation with Eve, right? Oh, surely if you just eat it, you'll be wise. You're not going to die. After listening to God's withering words of condemnation, that serpent became something very different. He was no longer this attractive, seductive thing. Instead, he became a snake that withers along the ground. And as it slithered away into the brush, it heard the words from God that were at once horrifying to Satan and wonderful for us. And you have to hear them. You have to hear them in context. In verse 15, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Revealed in that one verse, if you dive deeper into scripture and into the creation narrative here, it's one of the most awesome moments in history because uh, God, even though he expelled Adam and Eve from the garden and he closed its gates, there's a promise of the long expected Jesus, even in these moments, because it's clear that Satan is going to strike at the heels of our Savior but in the process, evil is going to be crushed. And the centuries roll by, right? And suddenly we find ourselves later on in Genesis chapter 2, in the, sorry, in Genesis chapter 22, in the land of Moriah. So Moriah was one of these high plateaus in the ancient land of Canaan. And today it's, on, it's kind of the summit around where you would find the city of Jerusalem. But the event we're reviewing today took place long before there were walls in Jerusalem, long before there was a big city. There was no palace. There was no temple. In every direction, if you stood on Mount Moriah, you would see barren desert and limestone hills. A lot of brown. The winds from the Mediterranean whipped the sand into kind of whirling miniature tornadoes. And we break into this story as we watch two small figures climbing to the highest point of Mount Moriah. At the hilltop is a large stone ledge surrounded by bramble bushes. An old man, his face ashen with sadness as he walks beside a young boy. In Genesis 22, we read why. He says to Abraham... Abraham. And Abraham answered, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only child Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice on the mountain where I will tell you. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled up his donkey. And he took two of his servants with him and Isaac, his son. And he chopped wood for a burnt offering. And he got up and he went up to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place at a distance. And Abraham said to his servants, you stay here with the donkey. And I and the boy will go up there. We will worship. Then we will return to you. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac and he took the fire in his hand and the knife. And the two of them went together. And in the next moments, hesitantly, the young man speaks, Father, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? The older man probably required or replied quite gently, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. In the next moments, we watch the old man prepare an altar. He carefully arranges the wood and he gets everything just right. And then he takes his son. And if you don't know the story of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac was a gift from God when Abraham was a hundred-year-old man. It was his last chance at progeny, at a son, at family that would continue on to carry on his legacy and his name. And God is now asking him to give him up. So he takes his son and he binds him with cords and he gently lifts him up and places him on the altar. He takes a dagger from its sheath at his side and he holds it aloft and prepares, prepares to plunge it directly into the boy's heart. And God stops him. We hear a voice of an angel thundering, seeming to come from every direction. Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from God your son, your only son. And then from behind Abraham, there's a soft bleeding sound. A, a ram is caught in the bushes by his horns. So Abraham then takes that animal and he puts it on the altar and sacrifices it in place of his son. In that moment, Abraham recognizes that God is good, although he was asked to give up everything he had as a sacrifice to prove his loyalty to God. God says, wait, you've shown me enough. And this story serves as a reminder that sometimes, although we don't necessarily get all the full context of the whole story, that God has a very good plan. And while we might not see it in its entirety, God's plan is always going to be good. In that for unforgettable moment, in this lesson, as Abraham is, is about to give up the most valuable thing in his life, he learned about God's true love. In that moment, there was a parallel between Abraham being willing to sacrifice his own son and God being willing to sacrifice his own son on an altar for our sins. That Jesus' sinless life would be offered in place of the sins of the world. Jesus would be that sacrifice for us. And in that moment, the rays of heavenly light shown through to a man who realized the importance of what sacrifice really looked like. And as we travel again further in through the story of the scriptures, we travel a couple more centuries through time and we find ourselves in the kingdom of Judah. It's six centuries now before the birth of Christ and the voice of a powerful prophet electrifies the people in the kingdom of Judah. We might even actually call him the, uh, Old, Testament, uh, the Old Testament Billy Graham because this guy was known. He was the friend of kings and he was also the friend of people like us, common folks. He spoke a language that represented 
the will of God to the people of God. The prophet Isaiah stood before kings and, he princes, and princes and he commanded their attention, but he mingled with peasants and spoke the language of common people. No Old Testament prophet had anything more to say than Isaiah did about Jesus. Because of his humanity and his limited understanding at the time, he had very little idea about who he spoke. But his words possessed historic and prophetic signature. He spoke of historic events that were happening in his day. His words also pointed ahead to the climax of when Jesus would show up into the world and change everything about what we knew. Today, we can look back and we can read Isaiah's thrilling words and we can know that they describe Jesus himself. The most poignant of these comes from a moment where he stands in front of a king, a king who reigned over people and was not a good king. God's people were crying out for help. They were crying out in darkness from oppression. And as Isaiah stood in front of King Ahaz, they said this, or he said this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And these words caused shock in the hearts of the king. And it stirred a people, a people who became excited that the Messiah was going to come, a Messiah was going to reveal himself to them and then change the world as they knew it. These people languished in despair and hopelessness. And as they heard the words of Isaiah, their hearts felt hope for the first time in generations. Someone is going to save us the government will be on his shoulders. He's going to be called the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And Isaiah wasn't finished with his prophesying about who Jesus was. Again, in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 7, Isaiah speaks. He said, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. How could this be, right? Like, Isaiah, Isaiah may have thought to himself, could such a man really be God's Messiah? How could a suffering, rejected person like this ever save a whole nation of people? 
People expected a king. They expected a rivalry between an evil king and a good king. They wanted battle. They wanted a war between good and evil where good would win and they'd be set free from their hurts and their fear and their pain. And instead, Isaiah delivers to them a message that this king, this hope, is going to rest in someone who is despised. The people who heard Isaiah's prophecies were probably not very impressed. But Isaiah didn't stop there. He continued on. In Isaiah 53, 9 and 10, he says this. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord God makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offering and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his land. And I imagine the Hebrew people were probably like, is this Isaiah guy losing his ever-loving mind? This does not sound like the king that we were promised by the other prophets. Why is God going to give us someone who is rejected and despised and ends up brutalized by the world? But Isaiah's message was right on target. This long-expected Jesus came and he brought light into the darkness of a hopeless world. And the promise of Jesus even today is that that light is going to break forth into our dark world again. We we live in this kind of duality in the Advent season, this this celebration of the past events that, that God broke into the world. And as Jeff James would say, he showed up in the neighborhood and he showed us what life could truly look like when we loved one another. And the other part of that duality is that God promises us that he's going to come again. And the darkness that we've experienced between the coming of Christ and this in-between time will once again be broken and shattered by the light of God's love. It's clear throughout Scripture that the forces of darkness have always tried to overpower the light of God. Even since the Garden of Eden, they've tried to put out the light of hope and that light that finally broke through in Bethlehem. But every time, evil has failed. And the forces of darkness are going to continue to fail until the day when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, where he will reign forever and ever. And today, as we celebrate the very beginning of the Advent season, we are once again reminded that while the Messiah came to save the world in ancient times, there's still hope that he's going to come again. There's a promise for us that our brokenness, our hurts, our imperfections are going to be healed. Today, we not only celebrate the remembrance of the coming of Christ, but also this anticipation, this expectation, that this hope that there's going to be a new creation through Christ Jesus when he comes again. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, this. He says, And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is now nearer than when we first believed 
The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of our darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. In this year, particularly in 2020, it's reminded us just how dark things can be, right? Our politics have divided us. A pandemic is killing us. Economic forces are creating homelessness and poverty like we've never seen in our lifetimes. We're literally living in one of the darkest times that any of us have ever known. But Advent reminds us that light is coming. And that light is going to destroy the darkness. So this Advent season, let us use this time, these, these coming days, to focus on the important things in our life and in our faith. Let's focus our hearts on making the world a better place and bringing about the kingdom of God here and now. Let us be light when there is no light. Let us not only have hope, that God is actively saving us here and now, but let us also be hope for the world who needs it. In this time where we need the hope of Jesus more than we ever have, we need hope to heal our nation, to heal our communities, to heal our homes and our hearts. Let us today on this first Sunday of Advent, let us begin preparing once again for Christ to come. Friends, we have a lot to be thankful for. That we have a good God who loves us and saves us. Let this season for us prepare our hearts to once again receive Christ. Friends, I'm excited about what this Advent season is going to bring. I'm sure there are going to be lots of surprises because it is 2020. But I know that those surprises result in good. So wherever you are right now in your own hearts, however dark things seem for you, a light is coming. Hope is on its way. So don't give up and don't be afraid. Thank you so much for joining us on today's Community Cast. We hope that you were blessed by today's conversation. If you'd like to know more about Community Brookside, please feel free to visit us at our website, communitybrookside.com, or find us on your favorite social media outlet. We hope to hear from you soon. Be blessed.